0: I'm honored to be here uh, again at the uh, movement formerly known as Campus Crusade for Christ. And uh, I guess now known as Crew, but equally committed to Christ. Uh, My name is JD. I am one of the pastors at a church uh, that is a local church here called the Summit Church. Uh, One of the things that if you haven't, if you are new here to the Raleigh-Durham area, you might pick up is that we are blessed here to have a number of very gospel-centered um, missional churches in the area. You are sitting in the middle of one right now. Uh, the building of uh, Providence is is there a great church. Uh, numbers of others that are around here, you'll hear from another good friend of mine next week, Tyler Jones. He is a wonderful pastor of Vintage 21. I know several of you go there, and uh, I just hope that uh, over the course of your time in college, you will find one and that you will stick with it uh, and that you will kind of get invested there and not moonlight at a bunch of them. Uh, you know, you don't want to uh, you don't want to have a relationship with a church like some of you seventh grade girls had with boys back in seventh grade. Uh, this is not like the, the the church of the week. And so I hope that you'll find one. Our church um, is uh, we have uh, two, a few campuses where a multi-campus church. I know. I see. Recognize some of you. Recognize some of the guys in the band, and uh, we are opening one this weekend, and uh, in Kerry, Kerry uh, High School. So that will be. Uh Thank you for that, Mom. Uh, I, I think I heard one person yell. Um, uh, we'll be at Carrie High School this week, uh, and so look forward to that. Hey, if you'll let me do something real quick, I have a gift for you, actually for some of you. Um, I have a, a book coming out October 1st. I know that's a shameless plug, uh, but they produce the first chapter as just a giveaway. It's like you know a free thing, and so I have a couple hundred of them back there if you're interested in it. Uh, you can have it. It's free. And then when the book comes out on October 1st, uh, you can all run to the bookstore, not walk, but run and go get uh, the book. And, uh, all the proceeds of this book, by the way, go to feed hungry children mind. And so, uh, you can, um, <laughs> you can do that. <laughs> I, uh, the book is just called gospel and it's on what happens when the gospel becomes the center part of your life. And uh, how that that the gospel is able to do something in you that religion is not able to do. And that is it produces in you the desire to love God. Uh, Many of us all of our lives, uh, at least in church, we've been told what we're supposed to be doing for God. And what I try to explain in that book, which is really something I think the Apostle Paul was the center of his ministry. And that is that we really grow in Christ, not by being told what we're supposed to do for God, but by standing in awe of what God has done for us uh and the gospel changes us and so that's what that's all about um uh, i i do have to make one comment about uh raleigh's first earthquake that i can ever remember in my life um did you feel that i uh, no i just i have a question was anybody i i some this has to be true of somebody was anybody in the middle of a prayer meeting when that happens cuz see when it happened i was sitting nobody anybody cuz i mean that would be epic because we we were, had our church's annual like vision night, which is a big prayer meeting. We come together and we dream and we pray. And uh, I was praying. I actually was praying Acts four thirty one where it says that God, you know, the Holy Spirit comes in and the place was shaken. That was one of the verses God had put on my heart. And so I'm sitting there working on some stuff on my computer and that thing comes through. At first I thought a a truck had backed into our building and like shook it a little bit. And then they come in and say, "We did. That was just an earthquake. And I was like, come on, four hours later. And that would have been epic. We could have just raised millions of dollars. People being like, wow, the Holy Spirit was there. Um, So, but no, no, it was just an earthquake. But that's the only one I can remember ever. You ever remember another one happening here? I can't remember. All right. Anyway, you got a Bible? Um, I want you to open it to John chapter 14. There is a, uh, a story that I think really captures the spirit of our generation. I say our generation, your generation. Um, there's a, a story that captures uh, kind of what's, I think, going on. It's not a biblical story, but it's a true story. It happened to a guy several years ago lived out in California by the name of Larry Walker. I uh, read this in the newspaper. Larry was uh, just a guy who lived out on the left coast California out there, and he um, was about 35 years old, uh, decided he was bored with his life, and so he wanted to add a little adventure. So he went out to the Army-Navy surplus store, and he bought 38 used Army weather balloons. And what would you do with 38 used Army weather balloons? They're exactly right. Um, What he did is he went and he got a a lawn chair and he uh, tied these 38 balloons to this lawn chair and he tied the other end of it to the back of a pickup truck. And uh, he got several of his friends to help him because what his goal was to, in his own words from this newspaper article, is he was going to set out to observe the neighborhood from a slightly different angle. He, he took a fully loaded BB gun, a peanut butter sandwich, and a six pack of beer. And he thought this was going to be the perfect little day, you know, just kind of cruising out above the neighborhood. Um, what his intention, but you're like, what, you know, BB gun, six pack of, here's what he was going to, he was going to, his idea was that when they untied him from the back of the pickup truck, he would kind of lazily float up, you know, and then he eat his peanut butter sandwich. And when he wanted to, to quit going higher, he would take the, the BB gun and he would shoot some of the balloons. And then when it was time to come down, he would shoot some more of them and he would slowly land. According to this article, his friends said that when they untied his, uh, his lawn chair from the back of the pickup truck, he didn't lazily you know, saunter up into the atmosphere. It looked like he'd been shot out of a cannon. Just <laughs> <laughs> two and a half hours after they untied him, the lost, I kid you not, the Los Angeles International Airport identified an unidentified flying object <laughs> at 12,547 feet. That is two and a half miles in the atmosphere. And the, in the article, it talked about what the, the 747 pilot radio back, he said, um, it looks like there's a dead man laying in a lawn chair at two and a half miles and he's holding a rifle. So they, they sent up this helicopter. By the way, what had happened is after Larry had gone up a certain, he got so nervous because he was traveling so fast that he did the only thing he knew how to do in a situation like that, and that was drink beer. <laughs> and so he didn't realize, of course, that his blood alcohol level was so much higher, and so after two cans, he was passed out. So they sent a helicopter up. They managed to, I don't know how, some kind of Jack Bauer operation, I guess, but get him into the helicopter. Then they land on the tarmac of the Los Angeles um, airport. First people to get to Larry, Okay. Not the reporters, but the police who give Larry a ticket for the obstruction of airport traffic. Isn't that awesome? (laughs) Second people to get to Larry were the reporters, and they asked Larry three questions. They said, first of all, Larry, um, were you scared? And Larry said, yes, I was scared. (laughs) Number two is, Larry, would you do it again? And Larry said, no, I would not do it again. And third question he asked is, Larry, why did you do it? And this is not supposed to be funny, so I don't feel like you have to laugh, but um, I love the phrase that he said in this article. He said, I just got tired of always sitting around. I just got tired of always sitting around. You know, I read that, and I thought, there's just, I mean, there's something in me that resonates with that. And I would imagine that for many of you, too, as you come into college, it's kind of like, I mean, you know, for many of you, it's like your high school career has been pretty much sitting around. And you know, at some points, you start to make some of these decisions about where your life's going to go, and you just... If, if not yet, you're at least starting to feel this kind of thing of I, I, I want my life to count for something I, I wanted to do something. That's why I came to college I, I I really wanted to go somewhere and i'm tired of sitting around Hopefully you're not going to choose the same path that larry chose uh, Hopefully that you will not if you do credit me with that so that I get sued because uh, you should definitely not try that at home uh, But I know that many of you are going to begin to ask questions like that and one of the most important questions Um, That you're gonna ask when it comes to setting direction in your life is gonna be deciding exactly who Jesus is and what relationship that you have with him. Because if Jesus is who he says he is, then he has control over every dimension of your life. I have found that most people come into college and they have a fairly lukewarm relationship with Jesus. Which means they're not against Jesus. They think Jesus is a great guy. He, you know, I mean, he, he, he's a religious leader, and I know a lot of people believe in him, and I suppose he can help you get to heaven, and they're not against him. But their feelings are just lukewarm. They might even call themselves followers of Jesus, but, but kind of the same way you would call yourself a follower of somebody on Twitter. Right? How many of you on Twitter, just out of curiosity, raise your hand. How many of you think Twitter is the dumbest thing, and you think everybody who's on Twitter is a twit? You raise your hand. All right. Okay. So I'm on Twitter. I'll just go ahead and, and throw that out there. Uh, I'm on Twitter and I follow like 247 people. I think it is. Um, some of the people I follow are my friends and I'm just curious as to what's going on in the lives. Some of the people I follow are, are staff members cause I like to know what they're doing during the day. And I learned some really interesting things. Um, I follow people I've never met like Justin Bieber. Uh, I do cause I'm a believer and, uh, I, 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 see what he is, is putting out there to the world all the time. Um, but you know what, I'm not obligated to anything. He, t- you know, he came out with one the other day talking about his new line of clothing. I didn't rush right out to buy his new line of clothing. Right? I, it, when I follow him, it doesn't mean, I, it, there might be some things that some of the people I follow on Twitter suggest that I do, but, but I take it or I leave it, right? And you find a lot of people that they approach and follow Jesus the exact same way. They just got kind of this relationship with him as, yeah, there's some parts of Jesus that I've incorporated into my life, but it's just, it's sort of a lukewarm feeling that I have about him. Here's what I want to explain to you tonight. That is, it is impossible to have lukewarm feelings about Jesus and to really have known him. He's the kind of person that if you ever really see him for who he is, you either fall at his feet and you worship him, overwhelmed with love and adoration, or you are repulsed by just hatred. I am not saying that when you really see Jesus, that you will automatically fall in love with him. Some of you will. But I'm saying that that you will not have a lukewarm reaction to him. You will either fall at his feet as the Lord from heaven, just overcome with love and adoration, or you will turn from him with just the strongest reactions of hatred. And so in light of that, I want to look at one of the clearest and most controversial things that Jesus ever said. A verse that I'm sure even those of you that haven't really been in church in your life have heard this verse before. But I want to look at it, try to take it apart and show you that and believe that that same reaction is going to happen in you. Either you are going to love Jesus more or you're going to hate him more. And if one of those reactions is not in you, then I haven't done my job this evening. All right, John chapter 14, verse 6. Here is the verse. Jesus said to Thomas, I am the way. I am the truth and I am the life. No one comes to the father, but by me. Jesus is in a discussion with his disciples and he's talking to them about the way to go to heaven. And Thomas specifically doubting Thomas, you know him, he decides that he wants to know exactly how they can get to heaven. They're like, why don't you tell us exactly how to get there? And so Jesus says to Thomas, he says, you're asking me to tell you the way to heaven. Thomas, I am the way. What stands out in the The way that he said it in the Greek language, if you're reading your Greek Bible there in front of you, is the definite article. It is definitely there. I am the way, not a way, but I am the way. I am the truth and I am the life. So what exactly did he mean by that? Well, let's look at each of those things and talk about in the Gospel of John what they mean. All right. First of all, he said, I am the way. Most specifically, he's referring to the way to heaven, the way to God no man comes to the father but by me it is popular to relegate jesus in our culture to one of many people who have enlightened the human race on the issue of god and given us a good path that we can get to god and so jesus is one of the great prophets he's taught some great morals he is the bedrock of western society and he's up there with moses and confucius and socrates and all those guys the only problem is that's not at all what jesus said He didn't say, I'm one of many ways is going to help you. He said, I am the way. Now, first of all, just the first two words of that, I am, you say, well, what do you mean? That's not that significant. If you understand what's happening in the gospel of John, it is, this is one of, of the seven great I am statements in the gospel of John. I am Jesus keeps saying these I am statements and I am is the name, the Jewish name for God. Uh, you, you may not pick it up here, but like if you go back to one of the other ones, John eight fifty eight, uh, the disciple or uh, the Pharisees are arguing with Jesus, and Jesus says, you know, before Abraham was, I am. He didn't say before Abraham was I was. That would be pretty significant in itself, saying that he was older than Abraham. He says, before Abraham was, I am. And he is quoting the Hebrew name for God because at the burning bush, Exodus 3.14, when God appears to Moses and tells Moses to go tell Pharaoh to let you know the Israelite people go, Moses says, well, who am I supposed to tell him is sending me? And, and And God tells Moses, tell them, I am sent you. And so Jesus looks at him and says, before Abraham was, not I was, but before Abraham was, I am. And so it is a claim to be God. And Jesus keeps repeating that. He's building his entire identity around these I am statements that he is God. Now, why am I pointing that out to you? Because when Jesus said that, he removed himself from the category of good teacher. I mean, at that point, he's either God or he isn't. Because being God is not the kind of thing that you can be wrong about. You know what I mean? I, I might say I'm the greatest basketball player in the room right now. That was not that funny, Okay. <laughs> I might say I'm the greatest basketball player, and I might really think that, and I might be wrong. And you might look at me and say, man, you're 38 years old, you're, you know, you're a little, you put on a few pounds, you obviously can't jump, you're not the greatest basketball player in the room. I could be wrong about that. It just comes from being a little too arrogant. But being God is not the kind of thing that you're wrong about. Oh, yeah, you know, I I created everything in the world, and I created you for out of nothing. Oh, no, sorry, I was wrong about that. I really didn't do all those things. It's just not the kind of thing that you can be wrong about. Either Jesus really was God, or he was insane. He was the worst liar ever. When you look at somebody and say, I'm the creator, something just happened. And you can't just say, well, he's one of the great men of history who taught us morals. He removed himself out of that category. Either he had a proper self-understanding, or he did not. Either he was God, or he was not. Does that make sense? Let me give you a great quote on this from Bono. Some of you are not paying attention up until now. You're like, oh, Bono. Right. Bono said this in an interview. Listen, the secular response to the Christ story always goes like this. He was a great prophet. Obviously a very interesting guy. He had a lot to say uh, uh, along the lines of the other great prophets. You know, be they Elijah, Mohammed, Buddha, or Confucius. But actually Christ says, no, I'm not saying I'm a teacher. Don't call me a teacher. I'm not saying I'm a prophet. I'm saying, I'm saying I am God incarnate. And people say back to him, no, 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 no. Please just be a prophet, a prophet we can take. You're a bit eccentric. We get that. We've had John the Baptist eating locusts and wild honey. We can handle that, but not God. Because you know, if you keep claiming to be God, we're going to have to crucify you. And he goes, no, no, no. I actually am the Messiah. At this point, everyone starts staring at their shoes and says, oh my God, he's going to keep saying this. So what you're left with is either Christ who was who he said he was, God incarnate, the Messiah, or a complete nutcase. I mean, we're talking nutcase on the level of Charles Manson. I'm not joking here. The idea that the entire course of civilization for over half of the globe could have its fate changed and turned upside down by a, no case, a nutcase, for me, that's way too far-fetched. So when he claims to be God, when he says, I am, it's, he puts you in a situation where you've got to make a decision. He's not just an enlightened spiritualist giving us a way to God. Jesus taught that he was God coming to us because there was no way we could ever get to him. He was not just, let me say it again, an enlightened spiritualist giving us a way to God. He taught us that he was God coming from heaven giving us a way there because there was no way that we could ever get to him. You see, the most important things about Jesus' life is not what he taught. The most important things about Jesus' life is what he did. In many ways, the four gospels, the majority of the four gospels, if you read them, are simply preludes to the last acts of the gospels, which is Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus, his main thing that he did was coming to do something here, to live a life that you and I were supposed to live, and then die the condemnation kind of that you and I deserved. In fact, what the word gospel literally means is announcement. It's an announcement of something that God has done for us. Uh, the Greek word gospel was it was, it was commonly used. Um, before the disciples picked it up and it just meant an announcement of something that had happened That was good. i give you I'll give you an example in history There's a story of a greek general who won a battle and protected a city And so he sent back word to this city that he had won the battle and defeated the enemy And that word that he sent back was called the gospel of general so-and-so general alexander or whatever It was an announcement that he had won the battle and they were no longer slaves. They were now free When the disciples choose that word to talk about Jesus' message, they were saying what's significant is not what Jesus taught. What's significant is what he did. And what he did was lived in our place and died the penalty that you and I deserved. So that now it comes to us as the way, the way to God, the way to God. You see, Jesus said, nobody comes to the father except through me. The way to the father has been barred for us. Jewish people had a great picture of this in the temple in the holy of holies where god dwelt There was this curtain that was about a foot thick and you couldn't go past it And if you did try to go past it, you were struck dead People sometimes would would carelessly either Either cross the barrier or they would act improperly in there and just immediately they'd be struck dead The presence of god was something that you and I could not enter into because of our sin you know, a lot of times we joke about being in the presence of God, like, oh, you know, God's my buddy, and God's like Morgan Freeman, and we talk, you know, like Bruce Almighty. That's just how it is. No! If you stood with the presence of, in the presence of God with sin, it'd, it'd be like a tissue paper touching the surface of the sun. It means if God ripped the roof off this place and we all looked at him, we would die. No man comes to the Father. There is a, God is so holy, he is so perfect, that sin, like you and I have... Cannot enter into his presence I And mean, the way I describe it to my church is like this imagine, you know, I handed you a nice cold cup of milk As you're drinking that cup of milk in the morning. I'm like, hey, it's only four percent human urine Nobody's like? Oh, that's awesome. That's like an a 96 man. I wish I had that kind of gpa. That's an a cup of milk. Give me another No, I mean four percent human urine means the whole thing is tainted You would you would vomit You and I, with the sin and the presence of God, it's the same thing the Bible says. No man comes to the Father. No man comes to the Father. You see, in short, the gospel is that you and I, because of our rebellion against God, because we've chosen to go our way instead of God's way, because we've chosen to give ourselves glory rather than Him glory, because we've chosen to do our thing rather than His thing, the penalty for that is death. And the gospel is that God, in His love, as Jesus came to suffer the penalty in our place, I've heard it described before. Imagine you were standing in front of the Hoover Dam. Anybody ever been out there? You know what I'm talking about, the Hoover Dam. Imagine you were standing in front of that, and say you were maybe a half mile back from it. And as you're looking at this gigantic structure, suddenly you notice the unthinkable happen. And that is a crack go right down the middle of it. And then the thing splits open, and this wall of water, larger than anything you can imagine, comes rushing at you, and death is certain. And right before it gets to you, the ground in front of you opens up. And swallows up every drop of water so that not a drop touches you. What the Bible teaches Jesus did is he, that was the wrath of God coming toward our sin. The rightful wrath of God. And Jesus stepped in the path and absorbed every drop into himself so that not a drop is left for us. He took the cup of God's wrath and he drank it to the dregs. And then he turned it over and says, it is finished. So when Jesus makes a statement like, I am the way, that's what he's talking about. There is no other way. I am the way. You see, you can't have a lukewarm feeling about him and understand that. Because what he says, and let me make this clear, what he says is that you are worthy of hell. That's not the kind of person you put on Oprah. Okay? This is is what the human race deserves. So he's just repugnant. You're You're like, that's what we deserve. But then he says, this is what I did for you. And you either believe that or you don't. That's why I say you either fall in love with him or you turn from him in hatred. You know, if while you were out you know, of your dorm, is, you, you came back and your, your, your suite mate said, hey, while you're out, you owed somebody some money and, and I paid it for you. What's your reaction back to that person? Well, it depends on how much they paid, right? They're like, hey, you owed you know, 38 cents for a, a stamp. I paid it for you. You kind of pat him on the back. He's like, thanks for your great you know, roommate. That's awesome, right? If they're like, you know, this analogy doesn't work for you because you don't pay taxes. Um, if you pretend you were an adult and you had been working for 10 years and it's like, well, yeah, the IRS finally caught up with you. You had 10 years of back taxes. It was like $300,000 and they were going to haul you off to prison, but I paid your debt for you. You don't have to go to prison. At that point, you don't pat them on the back and say, thank you. Right. You fall at their feet and say, command me, Right? See, when you understand what Jesus is and what he's done that he is the way, you don't have a lukewarm reaction to him. You either totally reject his message or you fall at his feet and say command me. I am the way. Here's a second statement. I am the truth. How do you know the truth about God? How do you know the truth about life, about death, about creation? Jesus said I am the truth. A little while ago I was I have two favorite restaurants, okay? They're both here in Raleigh. One of them's called the Angus Barn. Okay. And my birthday is May 1st. And you should remember that. Write that down. Gift card, Angus Barn. Okay. No. All right. So Angus Barn is one of those. The other one is the Waffle House. Come on now. All right. That is what America has contributed to the world. Democracy and the Waffle House. Okay. So, um, I was coming home one afternoon and I pulled into the Waffle House and I sat down and it's just me and like the waitress You know, same four people work at every Waffle House in the United States. You realize that, right? So here's, you know, you got the the blonde, toothless waitress. And there was this guy that was um, there. He was just a Waffle House patron. uh, And he was the kind of guy that you could tell spent a little too much time at the Waffle House. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, this guy, his teeth were so yellow that when he smiled, traffic slowed down. That kind of guy. (laughs) And I sit down and I order my hash browns, scatter smothered, covered, chunked, diced, and peppered, which I always get. And uh, I'm eating my hash browns and drinking my unsweetened iced tea and the, uh, when I put Splenda in, back off, okay? Um, and I, um, I overhear them having this conversation and it's like, it's like time warp. I'm sitting there and you, you can I'm eating my hash browns and, and I hear this, you know, per, I hear they're talking about God and, you know, the, the, the guy says, he said, <laughs> this guy, he was a, it was a man of girth. He said, he said, he said, you know, he said, I just feel like the most important question that you got to get answered is, is, is who is God and, and what relationship do you have with him? I, I just really feel like I want to know God. And D that was her name. The waitress was like, yeah, she goes, me too. I really want to know God. And I, I, I talk to people about God all the time in the waffle house. And I, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm looking up like, where am I? And, and then this guy says back to her, he's like, yeah, but you know what? There's so many different opinions out there about God. How are you supposed to know which opinion is the right one? Now I'm sitting there, I'm an ordained minister. I'm like, I put my fort down. I'm, I I was thinking you people are so in luck. I'm a certified expert about God. (laughs) And so I start having this conversation with him. and, uh, and actually, let me take it back. I didn't start the conversation, thankfully yet. Um, I, I put my fork down. I was about to jump in the conversation and answer by his questions. When the waitress says this, here's her exact words. She goes, yeah. She goes, you know who I hate? She goes, I hate when you're talking about God and one of them born again types is sitting in the room. She said, because then no matter what you're talking about, they always feel like they know more than you and they don't want to hear from you anymore. They don't care about you. They just care about showing you that they're right and you're wrong. I'm, I'm, my hand is like going up in the air to answer their questions about God. And I'm pulling it back down, you know, kind of sitting on my hands. And, uh, and she said, honey, what did you need something? Cause she saw my hand up. I was like, I just wanted some more tea. That's it. Could you just fill this up? And, uh, I, I, talked to them for a while and, and, you know, I mean, when it starts, when you start making statements like I know God and Jesus is the way, the truth, I realize that a lot of people hear that as arrogant. And I realize that a lot of Christians are jerks about it. But you've got to understand that there is a sense in which this is just what Jesus said. I'm not saying this to you because I feel like I'm smarter. I'm not saying this to you because I feel like my religion or my family or my culture or my background or upbringing is superior to anybody else's. I'm just saying that when Jesus was here, he said, I am the truth. And you have to make a decision about that. He either is who he says he is or he's not. He's either someone who is from god he is god who is revealing to us the way of life or he's not telling us the truth you just can't have a mixed reaction and you can't take parts of what he says and leave parts of you that's the crazy thing because people try to do that you know when i was in college we had this um, i remember one of my classes in philosophy was on plato and he's talking about the cave you ever heard the cave analogy remember this let me give you a metaphor kind of built off of that of what truth is like and i think you'll encounter this in college let me just use your imagination want to create some let's say that that for all of our existence all of our lives We had been in this room right here Okay, and the only people we'd ever know there were no doors no windows no way out no way in no way to see anywhere It's just this room. That's it Okay, and so, you know, the only people we know are the people right here So one day a group of us start to argue about what's on the other side of the wall and so you know we get in this big argument. One person's like, "Oh, I think it's a room just like this one." Another person says, "No, I think it's a room exactly opposite this one. It's like Bizarro version of this room." And then another person says, "Well, no, I think it's like a herd of wild Billy goats. And it has nothing to do with this room." And you know, and, and we get in this big argument about what's over there. And we get you know get all passionate. No, no, my way's right. No, your way's wrong. All that. What's ridiculous about that argument? We're just speculating, right? Nobody's ever been on the other side of the wall to actually check it out. We're just guessing ultimately at the end of the day that's what philosophy is is you're just guessing into the dark about things that none of us have ever seen nobody was here before time began nobody's been to the grave and come back nobody knows well, let's say that in the middle of our discussion all of a sudden through the roof comes like you know this beam of light just, Whoa! He just kind of comes in here and like kind of hovers there and says i'm from the other side of the wall and he begins to describe to us exactly what's over there do you have to believe what he says No, you could be like, this is a trick. I mean, Todd's full of, you know, this stuff like this. And so this is Todd, Todd, Todd's doing this. You could just say it's a total hoax. But listen, what you couldn't do is you couldn't argue with him. Right? Because I mean, to argue, you have to have facts and experiences of your own and you have none. So your choice is not, do I agree with what he's saying? Your choice is, is he who he says he is? Because if he is who he says he is, then I can believe what he says about the other side of the wall. Essentially, that's what jesus said i'm god i'm telling you there's a lot of things that are going to blow your mind And I hear people they start talking like well, I just don't agree with this about jesus And I don't like this about jesus as if you have the capacity to be able to critique jesus I mean you realize that if there is a god Then he created everything we see with just a word You can't figure out how to get your dvr to quit flash in 12 a.m He's smarter than you You know, people are like, oh, well, I don't understand what God would do because, you know, if God's all powerful and God's all loving, how come there's evil in the world? You're like, okay, well, if God's all powerful and God's all loving, He's also all wise, correct? Now, just think of this, just just pure logic. If God's wisdom is as high above yours as His power is above yours, think how much greater God's power is than yours. Think about that gap. If. His wisdom is that high above yours. Does it not make sense to you that there's a lot of things that probably are not going to make sense to you? Yes. We're talking about God. Of course it blows your mind. That's not the question. The question is, is who he says he is? Because if he is who he says he is, I can trust what he says about things that I have no capacity to judge. That's why Jesus makes a statement like I am the truth. Not just I'm telling you the truth, but I am it. I am the one who comes. It's just absurd to me. Here's the one that really gets absurd and actually ticks me off a little bit. Um, When I'm talking to somebody and they're like, well, I love Jesus. I really do. But, you know, I just don't like this and this about Jesus. I I was watching Larry King um, back when he was on like, you know, a year or two ago. And there was this woman on Larry King who kept going, well, my Jesus would never do this. My Jesus would not And I was like, you don't get your own personal Jesus. There is a Jesus. I mean, imagine if you and I were becoming friends and and I was like, well, tell me about yourself. You're like, well, I'm just, I'm an ardent Democrat. I always vote left. And I'm like, well, I don't know. I really want all my friends to be Republicans. So, in my mind, you're going to be a Republican. I'll never know you, right? Because I'm not knowing you for who you are, I'm knowing you for just what I'm projecting onto you. A lot of people come to Jesus that exact same way. They're like, Jesus, this is what you're allowed to say here, and this is what you're allowed to say here. I don't like this over here, so we're just going to leave that. Jesus, we're changing this because my Jesus wouldn't do that. You don't get your own personal Jesus, you don't get to vote. He either is who he says he is, or he's not. He either is the truth, or he's a liar. You just gotta choose which one it is. Does that make sense? I, I realize this is not really popular. I, I, I'm fully aware of that. I've been aware of that since I started to really, since I started to follow Christ when I was 16. I remember one of the worst situations I felt like I was ever in, is I was, um, was sitting by a girl in an airplane, who was actually pretty pretty hot. Um, this is before I was married, so, you know, don't, it, but anyway, so, so, so I was sitting there with her, and, and uh, she was she was from somewhere in South America, and her name was Bertha, okay, not Bertha, different Bertha. And Bertha and I are talking. She's on her way back up to Harvard. Well, at the time I was a student in Campbell University, so immediately I felt like we had a connection, you know, she and I. And uh, and so I'm on the airplane, and I'm talking to her about Jesus. Oh, no, I'm telling her about what, you know, how I got saved and everything. And I was giving my testimony and she was looking at me. She was like, she had these beautiful, like deep brown eyes. And she was like, she's like, I've never, I I go to Harvard University and I'm around the smartest people in the the world. And I don't hear them talk with such conviction and such certainty. And I find that so attractive. (laughs) You know, I was like, come on. (laughs) <laughs> and I was like, "She's gonna get saved. We're gonna get married. This is gonna be a great story someday." And uh, and so I, you know, at one point I started to tell her, "I'm like, I'm like, well, but you know, um, have you ever received Jesus?" And I, I started to ask her about that, and she says, "She said, uh, she said, no." Nah. She goes, "You know, I just, I really admired in you, but I just don't. It doesn't really work for me." She said, "I, I just feel like it's that's something different." And I was like, well, you know, Berta, uh, Jesus said that he wasn't just the savior of a few of us. He was the savior of all of us. Her eyes got really like narrow. We're sitting there in the plane. She says, you, wait, wait, you're trying to tell me that you think that if I don't accept your Jesus, I can never go to heaven. I was like, well, Berta, uh, I didn't tell you that. That's what John 14, I opened my Bible to John 14, 6, and I showed us. So that's what Jesus said. Her, her eyes really I mean she had this like fierce, like demonic look in him. And I was like, well, marriage was off. I knew that at this point. <laughs> And she said, I think you're the most arrogant person I have ever met in my life. And I was like, well, what? clarity, conviction, certainty, attractive. Don't you remember that part? She's like, no, this is arrogant. She said, how could you possibly in a world like we live in say that only way that we can go to heaven is through Jesus? I sat back in my seat. I, didn't really, I was like, I don't know, how, how do you answer that? And uh, while I was sitting there, I remember, I, this is not original with me. Nothing's ever original with me. Um, I, I, I remembered something I heard somebody say, and I leaned up and I said, um, I said, Barta, I said, I just want you to know, as we approach the Raleigh-Durham airport, I just want you to know that I'm really glad the pilot of this airplane doesn't look at the, at the runway the same way you do truth. She said, what do you mean? I said, just to say he came over the intercom and was like, I'm sick and tired of that arrogant little airport telling me I got to land this plane on the runway. <laughs> I'm an open-minded pilot, so I'm going to land you know, nose first on top of the building or maybe wings down in the, in the water. I was like, personally, I'm glad that he's narrow minded enough to land a, the airplane on the runway that they lay out for him. She said, that's not fair. I said, yes, it is. That's Campbell one, Harvard zero, by the way, if you're <laughs> keeping score. <under> <laughs> now, I, I didn't really say that last part, but um, <laughs> I know it's unpopular. But I'm saying it just comes down to simply asking, is Jesus who he says he is? Because if he is who he says he is, you can expect that there are things about him and his plan that will blow your mind because he's God. And so you you decide and you have to choose whether or not he is who he says he is. I'm the way, I'm the truth. One more here. I am the life. I'm the life. Jesus taught that because he was God, he has life in himself and that apart from him, we are dead. You see, the Bible diagnoses the core of all of our spiritual problems as being separated from God. Being severed from God puts us in a condition of spiritual death. And like a branch that is separated from the vine, when we are separated from God, our soul begins to wither. And our unhappiness, our meaninglessness, our self-centeredness, they all spring from that separation from God. Life without God is like dragging a wagon without wheels. You know, you can move a wagon without wheels and it scrapes and it beats it up, but you can get it from point A to point B. It just tears it up in the process. Without God, you can have friends, you can get a job, you can have a career, you can get married, you can have kids, you can do a lot of the things you want in life, but there is something that is tearing your soul apart because you were created to be whole in the love of God. That's why Jesus said, I am the life. And without me, you're not really living in life. You're living in a condition of spiritual death. You notice Jesus said, no one comes to the father. There's probably no more significant relationship in your life than that with your father I mean all of us have dads some of you your dads were great Others of you your dads were mediocre for some of you. They were absent for some of you. They were terrible And if they were terrible some of the deepest pain in your life comes from that broken relationship Earthly fathers were supposed to point us to the heavenly one What we yearn for from our heavenly fathers, whether they were good or bad is fulfilled in our heavenly father You were designed for that love. And Jesus says, I'm the one that brings you to that father you were created for. St. Augustine, 1,500 years ago, said, you have created us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Or one you probably heard before, Blaise Pascal, the French mathematician, said the human heart is created with a hole in it. A hole that's like a vacuum. And we spend all of our lives trying to fill that hole, plug that vacuum. But nothing we try in it works because that hole is in the shape of the love of God. You see, ultimately, the essence of all sin is idolatry. Idolatry is when you substitute something for God. Something takes the place of God in your life. You look to something for a source of security and meaning. You delight in something more than you delight in God. That is the essence of all sin. We always think of sin as like these wild, crazy acts. Yes, that's where sin ends. But where it begins is that something is more important to you than God. And God was supposed to be first and foremost in your affections. You were to be passionately in love with him. To have him was to be life itself. And for many of us, that's not it. The, the one thing we feel like we got to have in life to be happy is romantic love. It's not just girls and everything. that girls and guys. But you're like, you know what? I can deal with a lot in life. I can probably be poor. I just got to have Mr. Right. I got to have somebody to love me. Somebody so I'm not lonely. That's why you're terrified of, of being alone. That's why if you're approaching your senior year and you're not steadily dating somebody, you're starting to think, my life is not really going to be worth anything. So some of you, you girls only feel worthy when a guy's showing you attention. That's why you give your body away. Because You're giving it away because you get in return the attention of a guy. Because you worship that. And guys, the same way. You got a guy, you know, here's the way I describe it to our church. You got a guy floating in a sea of loneliness and despair. And along by floats, you know, a five foot two brown headed life preserver. So what does he do? <laughs> you know, he grabs her and suffocates the life out of her. Why? Because he's depending on her for something she was never intended to give. Some of you girls are looking for an affirmation. You're looking for a companionship. You're looking for a security and a guy that he just wasn't intended to give you. That's why you've been serial daters. That's why it's been like hardly a week of your life since sixth grade that you haven't been dating somebody or breaking up with somebody or in the process of pursuing somebody else. You're a serial dater because that's God to you. I can tell you this as a happily married man. Lonely, single, insecure, single people become lonely, single, insecure, married people. Micah's problems like loneliness and security aren't cured by a human being They're only cured by the love of god by the father For some of you. It's approval That's what I was always I I lived off of the approval of other people And if everybody liked me if I was popular then I was feeling good Even now I still struggle with it You know, I start thinking about hey, maybe you know, I like I want to be liked I want everybody church to like me I want a church to be big and successful so people talk about how cool I am And then I started to think, like, why has God done enough for me? I let people's approval take the place of God. Money, any of these things you can put in there. These things rarely deliver when we deal with our emptiness through sensuality, alcohol, drugs. You were created for the love of God. Jesus was the God who, when we had betrayed and abandoned him, substituted himself to come and save us. Do you understand the love of God for you? There is a Father who never tires of you. You have a father who watches over you, who Matthew 6 pays such careful attention to you that he knows how many hairs you have on your head. You have a father who, I read this this morning, Psalm 57 collects your tears in a bottle because you are that precious to him. You have a father who after you had rejected and scorned him and run willfully the other way and blasphemed him and shamed him and said, I don't want any part of you, came to earth in pursuit of you and went to a cross to suffer the penalty that you deserve because you were precious to him. Do you know what precious? You know what that means? I have four children now. My children are precious to me. You know what that means to me? It means there's nothing I would not give up for them. If a doctor pulled me in tomorrow and said, one of your kids has got a disease, insurance won't pay for it. And in order to purchase this disease, to purchase this medicine for the disease, you're gonna have to sell everything you've ever had or ever will have. You will go into debt for the rest of your life and you will live as a poor man. And without a hesitation, everything I've got gone. Why? Because my kids are precious to me. And I would give up anything for them. You realize you have a heavenly father who, 1 Peter 2, 9, says that you were precious to him. What is the God of the universe? What's precious to God? He can create anything he wants, right? You were precious to him. You were what he left heaven to come and find. You were what he came to rescue. You were precious to God, the father. That's why Jesus said, I am the life. Let me close by reading you something I got from a student here that I think just kind of ties all this together. It's an email that I got and I got her permission to to read it. Listen to this. I got this just a few months ago. I was raped my freshman year of college. Within the first couple of months of my college experience by the boy that I was dating, I denied it's happening. And for the rest of the year, I spent my time in Neverland with the assistance of drugs, alcohol, and even worse men. She said, I went through a time where I began to question how in the world God could let this happen and why. And was there even a God? And I got into therapy and pretty intense counseling. But even after all this expensive counseling, I still woke up every single day with this heavy thing on my heart. And it just became obvious, even after the counseling, that I needed something that the counselor had not given me. And if I was going to get through this... I needed to find it soon before it destroyed me. A friend of mine invited me to the Summit Church one Sunday, and I remember walking out the doors and thinking about the sermon for days. It was during your Search for a King series, and much to my shock, you actually said the word rape during the sermon. That began, she said, a process of discovery. Lots of questions about God that I asked. Until one night, I cried out to God on my bed. And that was the last night I've ever spent laying on my my bed, crying in despair over what happened. Something special happened that night. I prayed to God for forgiveness for what I had done, for the strength to carry on and for his help to get me through this. It was the most raw and desperate prayer I've ever made. I can't explain what happened, but immediately I felt his presence inside of me. It physically came in and took the burden off of my shoulder that I've been carrying around all that time, and I've never Suffered Through remembering again I stopped viewing myself as a broken and ruined girl that nobody would ever want because god wanted me He proved it that night I trusted him that night as my savior and i've since left my old lifestyle behind I dropped the drugs the alcohol and the group of people and especially the bad men that i've been hanging out with And I don't have any desire to ever live that way again This new high is so much better than any drug that I ever took during the time that I wandered from him Seeing all the choices I made and all the things that's happened those couple of years, I realized God's plan is amazing. And it was at work in all of what happened to me. I was raped, which contributed to a terrible immune system my freshman year. That led to tonsil surgery, which led to living off campus my sophomore year, which is something that's otherwise not allowed at my college. And that led me to my roommates, to counseling, which then led me to a friend of the summit, then to the summit church, and then to God. Almost thou persuadest me to be a Calvinist, right? After that, you understand that God has an intention for you and God is seeking you. That's why you're here. This is not an accident. He seeks you. You are here in this moment because Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's the only way that we get to heaven because he paid the penalty that we owed. There's no other way to pay it. He's the truth. He's the only way we know what's right and wrong. He is who he says he is. I believe that. He's the life, which means that anything else you build your life on will crumble. Have you ever trusted in him as your savior? Salvation is a free gift that's offered to all who will receive it, all who will repent and believe. Repent means to surrender control of your life to him. Believe means you receive what he's done on your behalf. Have you ever repented, turned over control of your life fully and completely to Jesus and believed and received what Jesus has offered to you? Repentance is not feeling sorry. Repentance is not getting into Jesus. Repentance is total and absolute surrender to him. He's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all in your life. All right? Either Jesus is Lord and Savior or he is not. Have you ever trusted and received him? If not, you have a chance to do that tonight. So I would ask that just in this room, let's all bow our heads and close our eyes for a minute. I want to make this very clear because... What it means to trust Christ is not that you feel warm and feel sorry about some stuff and say you want to get closer to Jesus. Salvation is a gift that is offered to you for all who will repent and believe. Let me say this one more time. Repent means total surrender. Have you ever surrendered all of your life to Jesus? If not, I would encourage you to do it right now. Jesus, I surrender all of me to you. I surrender. Let the walls come down. Let him break. Put it all into his hands. Some of you are crying right now, and that's okay. Let it come down. And just lay yourself in his hands. Jesus, I believe, which means that Jesus suffered in your place a penalty for your sin. And you're receiving that as yours. It's a free gift. You receive his love right now. Say it to him in your own words. Jesus, I receive this gift of salvation. I'd ask you with heads bowed and eyes closed to do something that I don't want you to do for me. I'm doing this for you, but I want you to acknowledge this. If tonight you are For the first time that you know about, for the first time you understood it, if you are praying to receive Jesus as Savior, would you take a very bold step of just lifting your hand up and acknowledging that to yourself and to God? Yes. Tonight I am receiving Jesus as Lord and Savior. Right now, all over the room, put your hands up. Yeah, there's several of you over here. Anybody else? Just put your hands up. Don't hesitate. Put it up. Father, I pray for every hand that is raised in this room right now. I pray that this would not be something that is just an emotional response, but this would be the beginning of discipleship. God, transform their life the way that you did with Travis. God, thank you for bringing them here and what you're doing. I pray and ask that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.